Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors. The 2020 Renault Runway Event is now on at Blackstone Motors, Drada, Dundalk, and Cavan. Save thousands across the range for the new year. I can't believe it. The 7th of November and I have a bloody man cold. I woke this morning and, oh, stop the lights. Where has this come from? Why do we have to have colds in this life? In this life? It's, oh, it's one thing that just gets to me, honest to God. A cold and all that goes along with it. I'm drinking loads of water. What else should I do? Is there nothing else I should do? Louise, any suggestions for the cold? You're a, a woman of the world. Know, know what I should be up to. Loads of garlic and hot whiskey. I like the loads whis- of garlic. I like the sound of the whiskey. <laughs> and you meant to drink loads of orange juice, aren't you? Yeah, I think plenty of drinks and things like that. But hopefully it will pass. Anyway, enough of that curmudgeon stuff on late lunch today. Although I do want to say something, I've had enough of it. I don't make any bones about this. Thirty first of October, Halloween. Watching television on the first of November. Guess what? You know what I'm going to say, Louise. Christmas ads walk into Tesco 1st of November Christmas everywhere and I'm sure it's the same in many other shops and retailers as well look I love Christmas I really love Christmas Hmm? but I hate the earlier and earlier and earlier nature of the build up to it where do you stand on this Miss Louise Walsh is it that cold of yours that has you moaning and bah humbugging (laughs) all morning (laughs) Complaining about your cold, now you're complaining about Christmas. Maybe it's just me age that this is becoming more frequent. Maybe it's something to do with that, but seriously, come on, Louise. It's too early. Mm. Yeah, it is too early to put up Christmas trees in that. I, I do agree. Sure. What, uh, decorating decorate your house? And decorating your house. I like. I love Christmas, but I'd be sick and tired of it if I decorated the house now. But I do love going around the shops and they're all Christmassy. From now, I do have to say. But it's too long a run in all in November and into December. Oh, by the way, Maggie McGuire's just took her head in the door. For your information, it is 47 days, 10 hours and 27 (laughs) minutes to Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) How about that? Exactly, to be precise. Has she got her tree up? Uh, Don't even go there. That woman, it's Christmas all year with that woman. I just have to say that. And she loves it and good luck to her. But come on, bombarding us with advertisements on the TV... Ah, give us a break. Look, I'll tell you what I don't mind. I don't mind the Christmas lights switch on towards the end of November. Grand, it's an old dark time of the year. You know, things like that. But really, do we need this running? Do we have to have it so early? Is it a male thing? 
Is it you know that standing joke about men running down the road on the twenty fourth of December at half five getting all the crisp shopping? <laughs> now you're talking. Put the tree up. Yeah, put the tree up on the twenty fourth. Decorate no. your house. No. And then enjoy the twelve days that's of Christmas. That's the other side of it. Into the new year. Come yeah. on. No, that's the other side of it. Too much. Anyway, November is an important month and should be celebrated. And I'm hoping I have an ally on the line on this one. Shane Breslin is a writer and podcaster. You know him well. Shane, are you with me or again me? I am with you, Jerry. 100%. Yes! That's what I wanted to hear. Shane, I'm not wrong, am I? No, I don't think you are. Um, and I think, I think you used the word curmudgeon. Um, no, I, I, don't, I don't think I'm in curmudgeonly either. Um, it's when, when I yesterday I put a I put a picture up on Facebook um, of uh, a big Christmas tree in the Apple Green and I I I love the Apple Green I go in there and do a bit of work uh, outside Navan and uh, just seeing big Christmas tree fully decorated whatever it is seven or eight weeks or whatever however long it is before uh, before Christmas just doesn't do anything for me and I I'm I, you said how much you love Christmas I. Uh, you, you won't get somebody. I, 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 it's hard to get somebody who loves Christmas more than me. I am a complete Christmas nerd and a nut for Christmas, but November the fifth or sixth, no, not for me. Oh, Shane, that's music to my ears. I wonder what our listeners think. Look, if you want to join in the conversation, if you have a view on this, I'll just remind you of the numbers: oh eight six eighteen hundred six five eight. That's oh eight six eighteen hundred six five eight. WhatsApp or text us, or you can call in an eighteen fifty seven one five nine five eight. Shane, Shane, is this really Shane a an attack, a subtle attack, being driven by the? The marketing people, the whole retail, you know, big wheel that turns all year round. Uh, yes, without, without a doubt. Like you know, when I, my wife was in was in one of the shops last week, and she said it was, it was actually day on Halloween, on the day of Halloween, and on the day of Halloween, all the staff were clearing out all the stuff, and they were, they were putting all the Christmas stuff out on the day of Halloween, and it's like from November the first, everything is out. The, the, the one thing we have to say is that they wouldn't do it. They, they, shops are in the business and business is in the business to make money and to make profit. And if they weren't selling it, they wouldn't be doing it. So they're clearly selling it. So it's not all, it's not all their fault, I would say. I think we have to look at ourselves if, if they're um, if, if they're making loads of money in the first couple of weeks of November or Christmas stuff. But the, the big deal with me is not it's not really the big deal with me is I, lo- I love this time of year. I love November. Um, I, I, I don't have a problem with the with the evening closing in. I love the colour of the trees. I love the the, the fresh, cold, fresh. Not, not looking at the wind today; it's lashing rain. But those cold, fresh days you sometimes get in November are just beautiful. I think that I think that the one thing that this does is it pulls you out of the present. And I think if, if we, if, the more we can be present, the more we can kind of just stop and slow down and breathe and look around. I think the happier we'll be. And I think what this does is just I think it creates a level of anxiety. It's kind of getting us more like every time you see the Christmas tree. For me, and I know for a lot of people, I speak to. You know, see Christmas trees out, you see Christmas stuff in the shops. Like you, you kind of going, oh, I need to get this for that person, or I need to do do this for that person, or who's coming to my house for Christmas? Like all those things that can wait until end of November into, into December. Um, and I think it does pull you out of the present. And that, you know, we must look forward in life, and that is a great thing. And I know you never knocked that, and I'm not either, because uh, that is part of the human existence. But you're dead right. We have to live in the moment as well, uh, Shane. We have to be here at this time and live this time instead of just racing ahead all the time. Um, look, is it is it is it gone, Shane? Are, are we too late? Has the horse bolted? Will we give up? 
Well, well, we're not going to change it. Um, I, I don't, we're not going to change it, and we're not going to change the way things the way things are. But I think what we can do is respond to it, how we respond to it. Like we don't have to. We can go out and do what we need to do at this time of year. And you know, there's loads of things in November. November's beautiful. There's loads of like, there's, there's an old Martinmas feast in the middle of November. I think it's the 11th of November. Um, like they, there's some that was a feast day for hundreds of years in, in, around around Europe, and it's celebrating the end of the harvest season and all that. But like, we we don't have to get sucked into it. We have control. We have our own choices about what we do and how we, you know, how we spend our time, how we spend our money. And that's all we can do is me, you, and whoever else. We can choose what what to do, you know. And as well to remember all the Irish who fell in the Great War and remembering that at this time of year as well is another thing very important to so, so many people. So Shane, we're not letting go of this. We're, this campaign goes on regardless. Well, like, it's like, yeah, just just breathe. And I, I listen. You said about looking forward. We need, we all need to look forward. We all need to have hope for the, for the future. I think that's one of the one of the paradoxes of of the human condition is we need to look forward and we need to look back and we need to be fully present. Um, but I think I think we don't. The one thing we do, a lot of us, I know me for years, is that I spend all my time looking backwards and looking forward and not actually not actually breathing and staying still for the minute. And I think the more we can do that and just look around, the, 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 the trees are beautiful. If you just look, if you look up and look around at the beautiful trees at this time here, the leaves, the colours, there are a million different colours. And if we can do that and just just breathe and slow down and be still for the minute, I think we'll be we'll be much the better. And we're not going to we're not going to make this go away. We're not going to we're not going to. There's no way that Christmas has come come to November the first and. The, that that's what it's going to be. It's not going to go any further, I don't think, because you have a Halloween and how much money you made mm. a Halloween. But it's got, it's going to be here from November the first for for forever. But I think we have our choices of, how, of what we do and how we respond. Absolutely, Shane. Thanks for taking our call. The wonderful Shane Breslin, there, writer and podcaster, with me on late lunch today, agreeing with me. Your comments are flying in. Keep them coming to us. I want to say hello to my good friends in Derry City. Phil and Edith Brown have been on to me by WhatsApp. I hear you're the Grinch today, says Phil. Phil, you know me well. I am the Grinch about the whole, uh, as I said, the earliness of it, but not actually. I love Christmas, Phil. As you know me, I love everything in life, fishing especially with you. But Edith, his wife, hello Edith, has been on as well. He says, Jerry, don't forget the Christmas puddings. Won't you make sure they're sorted this year? Edith, the Christmas puddings will be sorted because you know in late lunch and I'll give you a little early taste. Or should I say it? No, I shouldn't, Louise. You know puddings and Christmas and late lunch. We'll tell you about that in a couple of weeks' time. But anyway, Edith, that's sorted. Don't worry about it. Lovely to hear from both of you today. We have big fans in Derry now every day. They have Alexa and they listen to us. Isn't it great? Louise, some of the comments that are coming to us, give us a flavour of them. There's loads, Jerry. Yeah, I know. Come on, let's uh, hear them. Well, one said, Martin from Drogheda said, in America they do not put up the Christmas trees until after Thanksgiving, which is the last Thursday of November and that's time enough. We've WhatsApped uh, saying, I'm with you 100%, Jerry. It's way too early and it drives me crazy, says Mary. And another WhatsApp, I agree with Jerry. The people who put up their Christmas trees up early are the ones that take them down early. <laughs> Christmas should go from the 8th of December to the 6th of January. And But, uh-oh, Jerry would want to be careful about the Christmas trees. Some people might might uh, put them up early and put you on top of one. <laughs> What would that make me a star on top of the Christmas tree? Yes, I'll take that. I'll take that. (laughs) I could say something. I know. It could be a fairy either. (laughs) (laughs) Or an angel. Or an angel. I like those. Jerry. I agree with you. I love Christmas too. But 
not in November, says Paddy and Trim this afternoon. Shirley Reynolds is on. Hello, Shirley. Jerry, you're 100% right. Shouted from the rooftops, please. Agreeing with that is Claire in Talonstown this afternoon. Jerry, I was in a shop at the weekend. Christmas music blaring. I said, God help the shop assistants. God help them is right. They'll need earplugs. Hi, Jerry. Radio stations are not allowed to play Christmas music until December the 1st, so shops should not be allowed to. Well, I suppose we're regulated in the radio. Not so sure about the shops. Um, but you're right. That comes in from Maddie and Navid. We don't play a song on LMFM until after the 1st of December. Hi, Jerry. I agree with you. It's far too early to put the decorations up. Plus, it's not fair on the children waiting on Santa to arrive. I have six grandchildren. And that's all I hear about is Santa, Santa, Santa. It's a long time from now until the 24th of December. That's a very good oh, point, isn't it? that's a great it? point. It yeah. really is a point. I was just looking this up earlier on. The proper time to put up your tree is the fourth Sunday before Christmas, which this year is the 1st of December. And if you're getting a fresh one, Louise, you know yourself. It'll be gone. Ah, oh, jeepers, it'll be, it'll be a crisp by Christmas time if, if you get it now. And also decorations, about 12 days before Christmas, they say, you should put them up. Because, you know, people get tired of them as well. You hear people putting up decorations early and pulling mm-hmm. them all down since Stephen's Day. Yeah, or the is, dust on them. Uh, well, dust is Hoover. another thing. Not, not that is I, it not the 6th? <laughs> you should not? stay until January. Little Christmas Day early in January is right. We are certainly uh, animated about this on late lunch today. So are you. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us because after the break, we're going to meet a man who puts his Christmas tree up. Yes, 1st of December, not on your life. 1st of November, stay with us. Ah, uh, Jerry, I actually love the Lidl Christmas ad on TV. Well, well done to you, you do, but I just think it's there a little too early. I'm out and I have a confession to make, Louise. I have a confession to make. <laughs> I've been caught with me pants down. My Christmas tree is up. Really? Yeah, in the attic and it's staying oh. there till the middle of December. <laughs> boom, boom. I have a man on the line. His name is John Patrick Chute. And he has a tale to tell about Christmas trees. You won't believe this. John, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jerry. I don't believe... I really am pinching myself here, and I I wonder are you spinning me a yarn. Your Christmas tree is actually up at the moment. It's up 1st of November, as every year. Every year? Every year, the last 20 years. 20 (laughs) years? Sometimes, um, if we have an appointment or somewhere else we have to maybe put it up earlier I maybe probably the 28th 29th of October <laughs> John John I'm going to start crying here I really am going to start why 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 so there's enough misery in the world today and, <laughs> you know no, I, I won't argue with you on that I have to say yeah. that you're 100% right but come on late October the start of November have you not a pain in your butt with it by the time December turns in no no in fact I probably go back to the old saying my dad used to say, there's no harm in growing old, just don't grow up. I love it. I do and, love that saying. And it was, like, it was just myself and herself now, you know, so all the kids are all gone, we 14 grandchildren, so, um, yeah, so, it excites us, it excites them, sometimes they help up, you know, so. Yeah. But, but I'm too appreciative of, but, you know. <laughs> I was going to say that to like, your own... <laughs> If you don't like, you don't look. <laughs> <laughs> Do your own children not say, oh, Dad, will you come on? Look at this crew of, of, of ours and they want us to put it up. Do any of your family follow suit or do they leave it later? No, none of them do. Like you said, it's still in the attic. But um, they do get on us, but still in all, they like it. They still say it makes the house cosy and warm, you know. So, What about your neighbours? Are people passing by when they see it on? 
Yeah, that's a different story. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it is. <laughs> it does catch the attention of the children and then the backlash from that is then they're wondering, oh, mammy, mammy, can we put the tree up? And they're going, have they got that up already? And they go, yeah. <laughs> John, so, John. Yeah, you know, we get it from all sides. But I say, like, there's a grinch in every house. I, I have to say this. I'd say you're popular where you live with all the other folks. Just what you say there, the pressure they come under. So the, the, the 1st of November, and, and, and how long do you leave it up? When does it come down? Not till after January 6th, little Christmas. My so mother would get out of the grave and kill me if I broke that superstition. Ah, so you stick with that tradition on the other side. On the other side, as I say, like, you know, there is no stated date as to when to put them up. Everyone's choice. Some people put up the day before Christmas Eve and take it down the day after Stevens' day, which I think, what's the point? Leave it in the attic. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's a nice to build up because it, it gives us the incentive to go and get the presents wrapped and put them under the tree. It makes it all better mm. for the appearance, you know. So there is presents under it already. But you here, know. here, John, y- you do realise you are by far the exception rather than the rule. Well, I I don't go by rules. I never did. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to start. I'm too long on the now to start going by the rule book. It's and good to prop. It's good to prop the table up and stop with my being you know, uneven. You know, but that's a bit old. And the tree is it the same tree you've had over the twenty years, or have you changed? Twenty, 20 years. We bought it in the local shop for eighty pounds at the time, and it was actually too tall. It was sitting the ceiling, so we had to bend the top for down to get the, the flower on. And there's about seven hundred lights on it. <laughs> Oh, I'd say you can be seen from the space station. <laughs> yeah, well, more than likely. Well, the hall, that's just the sitting room. The hall stairs and landing is done out the back, done with the, 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 the decking and the thing. There's about 600 uh, LED lights as well. So, and, and have you the lights on there already? Uh, the, the ones outside go on by uh, solar, so as soon as it gets dark, they pop on automatically. And then the ones, everything's remote controlled in the house, so it's one control, press the button, and everything, the whole house lights up. In, <laughs> <laughs> you don't actually have to get off the armchair and turn on 45 switches. Just one switch does all. Can I go down to your house before Christmas? <laughs> You're more than welcome. <laughs> I'm, making a, I'm making a date with you now on the airways. I'm going down to see your setup. Is that all right? Yeah, it's fine, yeah. No problem. As long as the missus has no problem, make sure get her hair done. <laughs> and tell me, the, tell me this. I'll do this for me, will you? Do this. You'll be talking to Louise again in a minute. Will you take a picture and send it to us? Well, yeah. yeah, take a snap of the tree. I want to see that. Take that picture of that tree and send it in to us and we'll share it and we'll let everybody have a look at what we're talking about. Well, the one I did actually post up yesterday with the tree in the fireplace, that's it, it's such now, that's, that's real time. Okay, that's grand. And once we have access to that, I'm delighted with that. We, we, we'll take that and work away with it. Well, you know something? Everyone to their own. Happy Christmas. Can I say that to you on the 7th of November? Happy Christmas and many more and have a good new year. <laughs> um, as I say, like I have a photograph there as well. I can actually um, I can send it to you. You wouldn't believe it. People were giving out about, oh, look, you're right in the head. It's a home you two should be in Carlingford. Um, you know, but uh, I posted up a, um, a photo the other day as well, also in a certain local shop in town. No names, no scandal. Um, Thomas the Tank Engine, Easter Egg. Yeah. Yes, Easter Egg. Thomas the Tank Engine Easter Egg for 2020. Oh, my God. In a local shop. And, and people are giving it to me for putting the tree on the <laughs> What are we talking about? They're even talking... Oh, listen, hasn't the world gone mad? But look at your... No, that's all. It hasn't no. gone mad. It, it, no, no. You know, it, um, 
there's nothing wrong with a little bit of insanity. I'm after getting a message here. I am a real good friend of John. His house is, as he says, it's absolutely brilliant. I can verify he's doing it from the 1st of November. Love him. Uh, love him a lot. I don't know who that comes from there, but anyway, it's just come into us. I hate to think. <laughs> I hate to think. Eamon Doyle is probably on the station there wondering what he's he hasn't changed he's just gotten worse oh well I, I have to get a little confess. I had to clear this with him before we had a chat with you so you can never oh sure Simon knows me long know each other single pitch you know so I'm sure he, he's not surprised it's probably mild in his way oh uh, listen he said he's a good one he's a good one anyway John I'll Thanks. see you soon I'll be down to you alright we'll be down no for a while, Jerry. thanks very much for joining us on the well, show bye 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 you too you too John Tooth there talking to us from Dundalk anyone beat that anyone do similar to that what's your thoughts we want to hear from you on Late Lunch this afternoon 086-1800-658 WhatsApp us or text us across social media 1857-15958 if you'd like to call in Louise Louise come on Jerry, I'm in swamped here <laughs> go on try and get out of that swamp we'll dig your way out with some comments there okay between WhatsApp and Facebook and everything I have some comments here I totally agree with you and Shane you said it all Jerry. I put my tree up on the 8th of December and take it down on the 6th of January mm-hmm. um, somebody else said there are 12 days of Christmas and none are in November oh that's right that's right that is mm-hmm. right yeah go on December the 1st is time enough Somebody else said wait till December and shops are cashing in as much as possible while Mm. we had just a WhatsApp there in there. Oh, yeah. I would like to say something. I love to see lights and decorations and hearing Christmas carols. And if something lifts your spirits, it has to be a good thing. And no one has to buy anything until they're good and ready. I don't start shopping until December but I still like the feel-good factor, somebody said there. Interesting, interesting. Keep them coming to us. Well, I want to head towards news and weather at two o'clock by celebrating November. And I'm going back, folks. Yes, I'm turning the clock back to 1982 and a group called, does anyone remember them? Auto de Fay, Gay Woods and Trevor Knight, Gay on the Vocals, brilliant. This song was produced by the wonderful Phil Linnett. It is November, November, and don't you forget it.
I spoke with my next guest by phone back in 2018 on the publication of our first book, In the Court's Hands, which was universally really well received. Its sequel, Now That You've Gone, is out now. And between writing, working as a journalist with the Irish Times, being a mum and all that it entails, it's a wonder she has a minute to spare. But I can tell you, not on the phone. She's in the hot seat on late lunch today. Fiona Gartland, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks, Jerry. I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted that you're with us this afternoon. Well, first off, let's dive straight into this. You were due to have this book in late last year. Ah. What happened? (laughs) Well, what happened was, while I did have a version of it, the version just wasn't good enough. And um, I had given it in a preliminary condition to uh, Poolbeg Press, that's the publisher of the book, and I decided that I, I gave it a couple of weeks and had another look and said, no, this isn't just right. So I contacted Poolbeg and I said, will you just put that in the bin and I will um, fix the bits that need fixing. So I did. That's a big call. Uh, I think sometimes when, you, when, you've, when you're really intensely writing a book and, and you hand it over and you step back for a few weeks... Well, you can see things in it that aren't just aren't good enough or just aren't quite up to the mark or aren't just what you wanted to say. And so then you can go and fix them. But I think you need that bit of breathing space sometimes. Well, fair juice to you, because I know the way publishers work as well. They probably were scratching their heads a little bit and thinking, mm, you know, there was a deadline in this. She hasn't met it. Did you, when you say you put it in the bin, obviously you kept well, the, no. the, I, I, the body of it. When I say that, I, what, what I'm talking about is the file that I sent. Yes, OK. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't mean the oh whole book. God, I was God, panicking no. there. I said, did you no. have to start off again? No, no. Not so. Just the okay. file. Just yeah. the file okay. that I sent. I said, just leave it to one side. OK. And and I'll give you a better version. And then when you came back at it and uh, version two, much happier. Well, I mean, that would be version 20, oh, really. I know, I know, I know, <laughs> you know. Because there's so much I rewriting know, yeah, yeah, involved. Yeah, of course, of course. I think with, with writing a book, for me anyway, I, I just go straight through if I can from beginning to end. Mm. And then it's back over it and back over it and back over it. So, uh, tell me this. I, I read a piece uh, around this book and, and you and writing as well, which I have to say was fascinating. And basically it was about being distracted when you're writing and mm-hmm. hearing these voices. Ah. T- t- tell us about that, because it, it's intriguing, may I say. Well, I, yeah, it was a bit of whimsy, really, that yes. I wrote. Um, on my wall in the little room that I have, my husband built me a little room at the end of the garden to do some writing in. And so on the wall, I have a poster of uh, Irish writers, but it's a poster that the Irish Times brought out to sort of balance out the Irish writers poster that you normally see that is all men, the James Joyce's and the Sean O'Case's, etc, etc. So this one is all women. So you've people like Ivan Boland on there and Anne Enright. And um, that's sitting up on my wall and I often glance at it, you know, the, the, all of the faces, almost all of them, are looking straight out of the poster. Actually, yes. it's nice to look at them, and it's nice to see them there. And recently, in particular, I've gotten worse with my mobile phone. So I was imagining what those women would say to me when they see me constantly picking up my mobile phone and checking emails and that sort of thing. 
and that's that's why I wrote that piece. But it was a piece of whimsy. Oh, no, it was really enjoyable, may I say. Yeah. It really was. And the way you put it across. But you did put the phone into the drawer and put it face down and on silent. I did for that time, yes. Yeah. I'm still struggling with that discipline. I <laughs> Don't have to we say. all? But look at you work yeah. in this game as well, and I understand mm. the way it works. When that thing beeps, mm. I just automatically mm. look at it because I think it's a guest or a story or something, something I need, to, need know. to know. We're in that business, yeah. and it, it never stops. It moves fast, and it's 365 days a year. See, I'm making excuses for myself and Fiona. If you ever meet us and we're on the phones, you know the story. Anyway, Beatrice Barrington is back, the court stenographer. I think I mentioned this to you last year when we talked. Obviously, from your work and you're synonymous with the courts, etc. This is right up your street. Is this from real life or do you let your imagination run? Well, I'll tell you what happened with Beatrice. Um, Initially, I had written an article for the Irish Times called The Secret Life of a Stenographer. And then I was thinking, the stenographer is there in the court, taking all the notes. She sees and hears everything. And yet... People hardly notice her. So I wondered what would happen if she saw something related to a court case she was working on that could potentially affect the trial and what would she do and what would be the moral dilemma. So that's what kicked off the first novel. And then in the second novel then, she's back with uh, Gabriel Ingram, her, her friend who was a retired guard, and another friend, Georgina um, her husband is murdered and Georgina looks for her help because she knows she knows people in the guards and that she might be able to tell her what's going on because the guards aren't telling her very much about the investigation. So that's what kicked that book off. And you mentioned Gabriel Ingram and retired, but he's intriguing as well because there's a subplot built in with him with this younger woman. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody loves the older man, younger woman thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, there is. But well, I won't say too much about that. I know, I know. But but that runs in there as well. But there are a number of subplots in this book involving different people and cases as well. Um, Your experience in the court, from from what you've seen, you know. Mm. Yeah, I I covered a lot of family law. Yeah. Um, Once the law changed in 2014, you could go along to the court as a reporter and provided that you... um, didn't use people's names or any details about where they lived, anything that would identify them, you were allowed to report that in the newspaper. So as soon as the law changed, I went down to the courts and began covering cases. Um, in this particular book, I the, the case, that the thread that runs through it is a couple who are um, in marriage breakdown. They're in a separation. And so you get both of them on the stand and the kind of questions they're asked and all the detail that comes out and how things are spun that might otherwise be viewed as perfectly normal in a family relationship. And I think my motivation in doing that is really I feel that courts aren't the right places for marriage breakdown. You know, I I really feel strongly that people who are separating are much better to use mediators because you go along to the court and you have a stranger basically who decides on your life how your life is going to work out. If you go along to mediation, you're negotiating. But if it comes down to having to actually go into the courtroom and be ju- and have a judge make a decision on your life, no one comes out the happier of that, really. No one wins. And, no. and, and, and you've been on about this on, on several occasions and, and, and I'm glad you brought it up because the message is as well, if you go into the court and you allow them rule on it, 
this is imposed on you, this settlement. Mm, and a lot of people don't realise that. They don't. And also, I think a lot of people think if they go to court, the judge will say, you're right, Jerry, and your wife is wrong. And um, they think they're going to be vindicated. But in fact, that's not how a court case works. A judge will, except in extreme cases, a judge will very rarely say, you're right and you're wrong. The agreement will be somewhere that's imposed on you somewhere in the middle. The judge will do his or her best to work out what's best for that family. But really, um, it's the place of last resort it should be. If you're going through or do in the future, I hope you never do. Uh, uh, The scenario Fiona's been talking about there, those words, those last couple of minutes there, heed them, take them on board and you will value that advice for the rest of your life. Um, This is the second book in the series. So this, of course, builds on on the first one. This is the second one now. Mm -hmm. And and a three book deal is what you did, was it? Yes, that's what I have, a three book deal. But I, I... I'm very attached to Beatrice and Gabriel and I'm not sure that'll be the end of the road for them. I hope not. <laughs> Look, the world's your oyster with this and the potential for it. You're, you're right there. But the third one, will will that come out now in 2020? Or, or, That's the plan so okay, far. Okay, yeah. And you're working away, are you, on, on, that, away that, on that at the moment? Yeah. Is it, is it a big ask? Like, you know, I mentioned you're a busy lady. You're a working journalist with The Times. You mentioned the courts there as well. You have a family. This is the third book now on the way. How do you work all this? Uh, it is a big commitment. Um, it, it, the, the writing of the first book is a different experience entirely because you're writing at your own leisure. You haven't pitched it at, to anyone. You've no deadline. But then when you're lucky enough to get a book contract, you're dealing with deadlines. And so you have to make sacrifices, and I do, you know, um, in terms of my... I mean, I don't see a lot of telly, for example. Uh, you, <laughs> uh, you know. may be lucky there, Fiona. Perhaps. Um, and, you know, I, I, my days off at the weekends and that I would spend doing writing. Yeah. yeah. But look at the fruits of your labour. But I love it. Ah. I wouldn't do it if I didn't love writing. I can understand you do. And you produce brilliant books like this. Well, isn't it a fantastic story? No, you, you've said recently that besides being a writer, and here's another string you have to have to your bow, you need to be a salesperson. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I'm really only learning that, Jerry. Um, I was entirely naive when my first book came out and didn't realise that that producing the work itself wasn't the end of what I had to do for that book. Um, You need to do a lot of social media now, which wouldn't have happened in the past. Obviously, you have to be clued in. And that comes back to the distraction of the phone as well, because you're trying to... um, get your name out on Instagram and on Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot more work involved. Doing this is a pleasure, but um, it's all part of what has to be yes. done when you're promoting a book. Yeah, because it is, it is this type of game out there. And we're familiar with our book club and all the books on this show as well. You really do have to do what you're saying mm. or else you're lost in the plethora. Well, there are thousands of books published in Ireland in particular Ireland Mm. because we're such great readers Ah yeah and long may that continue Um, I want to tell listeners that look for you you are an acclaimed short story writer and a very successful short story writer in your past Um, the change from that you know short stories to the book big step up I wasn't sure when I started that I wasn't writing a short story. 
But as the story developed, I, I realised that I needed a longer form to tell what I wanted to tell. And that's how it ended up as a novel. It wasn't that I sat down to write this novel. It just evolved that way. When I'm writing, I don't um, plot. So I'm, I'm going from one chapter to another. And just like the reader, I don't really know what's going to happen next until I start writing it. Terrific, isn't it? It really is. And for you, you know, that's so interesting as well. Another piece of advice you've put out there lately is... If you're going down this road, you think there, you, know, you can make something of a career in writing as well. Perseverance is the big word. It's the only answer, really. Talent is all very well, but perseverance is absolutely essential because you're going to get knocked back. You're going to have to say, no, actually, sorry, I can't go for that coffee with you on Saturday morning because I actually have to write a thousand words. And you have to be prepared to sit down, even when you don't feel like it, at your given time. Once you've allotted a time to yourself, stick to it. I don't think you need to write every day, but I do think you need to have a set routine every week for when you're going to write. You need discipline, you need perseverance. I've been in court from time to time myself, and I just want to say something when you hear me today. It's amazing to hear a defence and a prosecution talk about the case. Do you ever... I'm sure you do. You think they're talking about different things. They're so far apart, poles apart. Absolutely. They they do come at different angles depending who they're representing. If it's a case um, like in, in Now That You've Gone, a husband and wife who are splitting up, they're both spinning everything in their own favour as much as possible. So what would seem like everyday events to you and I might turn out to be something much worse if... It's got into the hands of a prosecution or a a barrister or a solicitor. Um, People come at different angles to things. And then the truth is sometimes in the middle. If you're talking about a criminal case, of course, the defence lawyer is coming at an angle where he's hoping to show that his um, client didn't commit the crime or at least show that the, the prosecution hasn't proved they did commit the crime. And whereas the prosecution will have its own story built. Um, At the start of a trial, you will hear that story. When a prosecution lawyer opens the case, they tell the jury all about what what has happened in the case and how it happened. And the case is entirely about selling that story to the jury. The judges are good, you were saying to me, at picking through what they hear. They are very good. They're very good in family law cases, unlike in a a criminal trial. A judge may often address the person in the witness box. So they might address the husband and the wife about a particular incident that has happened. Say, for example, a wife might say that the husband threw a cup at, at my head and the husband says, oh, no, that never happened. So the judge will dig down into that. The judge will say things like, exactly how, where were you when the the cup was thrown? Um, How did it happen? What did he say? And it becomes quite clear when you dig down into a person's story, whether they're telling the truth or not. Certainly judges are very good at taking apart uh, evidence that's being given if they think that the truth isn't being told. Let's roll back the clock with you. Did you get fed up looking into people's mouths? Oh, (laughs) 
That's a long time ago. It is. It is a long time ago. But that's where you started. Well, it is where I started as a dental nurse. Yes, that's true. I did. Um, Well, I gave up work for about eight years entirely. I have four children. So I went, um, I took a career break initially from the dental hospital. And then I decided I would stay at home for a few years while the children were small, which I did. And then I went back and studied journalism. Started in the local newspaper, The Northside People in Dublin. And then I moved into the Irish Times. You're a great story. That four, that um, eight years with four of them. Mm. Say that was one of the busiest spells of your life. It certainly was intense, but gosh, um, it went so quickly now. Mm. When I look back on it mm. at the time, of course, uh, you think they'll never be big or they'll never get to secondary school or they'll never get to university or whatever. But... Um, years roll around very yes, quickly. they do. I, I, I found that myself in life, that when you're in the midst of something, you think, oh, this will never end. It does quick enough and yeah. you'll be looking back as well. Mm. Going back to college and g- going a completely different route from, you know what I mean, the mm-hmm. dental hospital. Sure. What put that afoot? Well, um, I suppose I always loved reading and I always dabbled in writing short stories and things for my own pleasure and occasionally for Francis McManus' short story competition. So when I decided it was time to change and regain a career after being at home for eight years, I thought, what do I want to do? And dental nursing is a fine job, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. So I decided I would retrain in journalism because that was the world of words. And I wanted to work in a world of words. And you certainly have made your impact on the world of words. The Irish Times, how did that come about from the Northside people? Um, My husband is a taxi driver. And he had the assistant editor at the time, Miriam Dunhu, in the taxi one day. And he said... My wife works for the Northside People. She's a journalist. And Miriam said, here's my card. If she's any good stories, tell her to give me a call. So I did have good stories and I gave her a call. And the Irish Times printed some of the stories and then offered me some shift work. So that's how I started. May I say it's my go-to newspaper. I love it. Uh, and I especially love it on the weekends. And it covers a multitude. And you're on a great te- team of writers mm, there. Sure. Do you know Suzanne Lynch? We know her, the American correspondent. Suzanne's terrific. She's been in with us here. Mm. And she's uh, she's from County Meath, of course. She's wonderful. She's a terrific journalist. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. But, but you have, across the board, wonderful journalists. It's mm. challenging, though, isn't it, th- this game? You know, w- w- will we sit today, newspapers, the world, as it, we knew it? It is. It is a very challenging game to be in um, and it's changing all the time and it's so fast. I'm, I work actually on the news desk now. I'm not actually out on the beat anymore. So I'm, I'm working with building what the newspaper will look like um, for the next morning. So you're, you're working with a lot of other journalists who are all trying to get the story and they're trying to get it simultaneously for our website so breaking stories will be coming out on the website. So the speed has a lot to do with it now. Whereas when I started out as a journalist, you went to your event, you wrote up your copy, you filed your copy, it went in the paper. Now you're filing takes. Any of our courtroom journalists now would file takes. Yes. And it's going up on the web during the trial. My oh my, where will it ever end? Who knows? But that's intriguing for us as well in the future. I will remind you, the name of the book is Now That You've Gone by Fiona Gartland. 
great read coming into that season we were talking about at the top of the show. You know that thing that happens on the 25th of December? Shh, 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 I shouldn't really mention today. <laughs> anyway, I take it you don't have your tree up or anything like that. <laughs> I prefer not to use the C word until December <laughs> in my house, anyway. <laughs> I'm with you all the way there. It's brilliant, this book. You love it. Honestly, it's the second in the series, third on the way. Fiona, wish you well. Thank you so much for coming in and joining us on Late Thanks Lunch today. Thanks for having me, Jerry. Thanks a million. I just wonder how many people have had an experience like we're going to hear about now. You know her well. She's from mams.ie. Siobhan O'Neill White is with us on the show. Siobhan, really good to see you again. Thank Thanks you for, for joining me. us. Her daughter, April, is here. Hello, April. Hello. Welcome to the show. And joining us on the line uh, is Rosie Bissett. She's the CEO of Dyslexia Ireland. And I'll say to, hello to Rosie. Hello, Rosie. Hello, Rosie. Hi. Hi, how are you? Thank you very much for joining us on the show today. I'm going to start with talking by talking to Siobhan. Tell us the story of this mm. wonderful young lady beside you here. My little firecracker here beside me, our little star Gaelic player. So really it started when April was around five or six. We noticed that homework was very difficult for her and it became very stressful. It became a very difficult part of the day for her and for me and her dad. And, you know, she was trying her best and it was just she couldn't put the words together and put the sentences together like her brother and sister before her didn't have these difficulties. So we really didn't know what was going on. We'd never come across this ourselves. So, you know, parents are learning all the time as well. So I asked her teacher when she was around seven, do you think maybe she has dyslexia? And I had started to look into things because it was such, it was so, wasn't it so hard? It was so frustrating homework every day. She was crying. I was nearly crying. And it wasn't that she wasn't trying. She just couldn't quite get there. So, um, no, no, not dyslexia. No, no, no. She just needs a bit of extra support. So we used to do things like go to the shop. I'd give her the money and get her to figure out the change and trying to get her to understand the prices in the shops and how to read things. And in everyday life, making a real effort, you know, to help her. But it, it didn't really do anything. It, it wasn't really helping. So again, I was saying to the teachers, like, what? Like, there has to be something. So the school were very good and they gave her extra support in maths and English and reading and things like that. They were and they never pressured her. They were just they were really good to her. However, we still didn't know if she had dyslexia or not. So this went on for a couple of years. The homework, the stress, all of that was going on. And then last year, April got we got really lucky and she got a teacher whose brother is dyslexic. And, yeah. and the teacher, the teacher picked up on this. Yeah. Let's bring April into the conversation. You hear what your mum is saying there. How did you feel in school? I felt like I was making an effort and I know I did, but I just couldn't put words and things together. And it really made me stressed and I felt like I wasn't good enough to do things. So you felt really bad yourself about yeah. this. You were doing your best and yet it wasn't happening for you, April. Yeah, it just wasn't working out. And this went on, your mum said from six, seven years of age, this went on through each class as you moved up along. Yeah. What happened with this particular teacher? He was really nice. He didn't make me read in front of the class, which I don't like doing because um, I just don't like reading in general. And he helped me a lot and he made me, he let me go into little groups of 
the other teachers helping me and he was just really helpful and nice. So you felt suddenly there was a teacher that was helpful to you and yeah. trying to make school life better for you and all that happens there. Yeah. You mentioned there about getting up in front of the class. I'm sure you must have been sick in your stomach mm-hmm. through the years if you were called up, were you? We did do presentations every Friday. I was okay with them because I knew that I was good at them and he normally gave me 15 out of 15 and said they were really good. Great. Now, he has um, a relative, as your mum said, who lives with dyslexia as well. Yeah. What happened? Did, 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 did he cop it straight away or what happened from there? He just felt like I wasn't really learning the things that we were learning like the other people were. And I just, he just found out and he made the school get me like this lady who came in and did these things with me and then she found out that I was dyslexic. So you had a test. The test was organised by the school at last and the confirmation comes through. I'm going to ask your ma'am this in a minute. You first. How did you feel when you got the confirmation, the diagnosis? I was happy because now we knew what was wrong and we could work around it. And now I have a laptop and I have a reader pen and it really helps me now. What class are you in? I'm in sixth class now. So you'll be going to secondary school next year? Yeah. Siobhan, when you when you hear her, herself and what she went through, I uh, hate when she, I, I hate when you say the word wrong because there's nothing wrong with you. It's just your brain is, yeah. is wired the way that it is, and mm. it's you know it's really it's disheartening because our educational system is so rigid and so strict, and it doesn't take into account creativity. And you know, April's very creative and colourful, and and she makes things, and it just they're not the boxes that get ticked. It's it's just the standard boxes. And um, I, I've spoke with Rosie and the Dyslexia Association. They've been amazing. And, you know, she was the first person I spoke to that actually had a clue what she was talking about because going through the Department of Education is, it's like banging your head against a brick wall. There was no help, no support. And what really, really angered me and David, my husband, is one of the criteria for testing a child for dyslexia is an IQ test and it's a standard IQ test. So you're giving a child who struggles in those very areas a test. If they don't score above 80 in that test, the Department of Education offers no support to that child, no matter what they score, unless it's above 80, right? So she's, April did not score above 80. It's like you're giving a colourblind person a test to pick out colours. You're, you're setting the child up not to succeed, okay? Mm. So the Department of Education said to me, yes, she has dyslexia. Yes, she's going to need laptop, reading pen, support. We're going to do workshops. All of this, definitely she needs help. She's going to have to have accommodation when she goes to do her junior cert, her leaving cert, into the college years. Because April will do all of those things because we will do whatever we have to do to help her do them. And I said, great, so... How do you support us with that? Oh, no, we don't because she didn't get above 80 in that one test. So I said the one little test of everything that we've collated, all the information, this little test here, this little standard IQ test that you're giving to the children with the very difficulties in those areas is what they use to measure whether or not a child is entitled to support. That is crazy. It makes no sense. And actually, when I I was arguing with the Department of Education and the person said to me, I was speaking to a psychologist in there and she said, you know, it is a bit of a contradiction when you put it that way. And I, how 
I like, I had to just bite my lip because the language would have just come flying. A contradiction is um, probably a mild yeah. word to describe it. Let's bring Rosie yeah. Bissett into the conversation. Uh, Rosie, welcome to the show. You're listening to April and Siobhan there. Is this typical of what you come across? Uh, unfortunately, yes. Uh, Siobhan and April's story is, is, is a typical story that we do come across, you know. And I suppose, uh, thankfully, look, there are wonderful mams like Siobhan who are great advocates and wonderful, you know, uh, bright girls like April who are able to talk about their experiences. And that's really important. But unfortunately, our school system is very much... It very much op- operates on a kind of a, you know, waste model, you know, in terms of particularly uh, conditions like dyslexia. They tend to be, you know, like the experience that Siobhan had. She was talking to teachers at a very early stage and saying, look, something isn't, you know, April is not learning the, the way that I would uh, be expecting her to be, to be learning and she's having these difficulties. Um, they tend to kind of, you know, put it off and go, oh, maybe she just needs to, you need to work on this or you need to read more to her at home or you need to just wait and see. Maybe it's just a, a phase and she'll grow out of it or don't be rushing to don't be rushing to label or something like that um but actually as you'll see from i suppose the the positive experience and i noticed that when april was talking that the first thing she said about when, when you asked how did you feel when you had your dyslexia identified was actually she felt happy and i think again happiness relief um understanding it's hugely important for, and we see this with people of all ages I mean we, we've assessed people from you know kind of six and a half to you know a gentleman in his 80s ones who I, who, who uh, I remember many years ago um, and I think people irrespective of their, of their age it's hugely uh, validating of their experience it's hugely important for them to have sometimes it's that thing of having a term to explain that they learn differently that they're not deficient, that they're not, there's, that, that there's necessarily anything wrong with them, but that their their brain works in a different way, they need to learn in a different way. And unfortunately, as Siobhan has, has said very eloquently, our system tends to be very much, you know, kind of a, a little bit of a one-size-fits-all system at times. And if you don't fit into the kind of the the neat, I hate the word, you know, average, normal, I hate, although I don't like those words, but if you kind of fit into that sort of average norm, it's okay. But if you're in any way kind of diverse from that, then um, unfortunately the system can be, the school system can be a challenging place to, to navigate your way through. But, but surely, can, can it not be a, a given that, you know, when children uh, present to teachers and, and, and they see there's something up, surely across our school system in Ireland, it should just happen that testing happens. Yes, yeah, no, absolutely, I agree with you. It, it, it would seem like such a, a logical thing to do, you know, um, and particularly to be doing, we'll say, kind of screening testing on, 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 you know, on younger children or certainly on children where there's obvious concerns, whether that's coming from the parents or teachers or often both, that a child is not, you know, picking up literacy uh, to, the, to the level that you would expect. And while even with with there are uh, early screening tests, including one that was, you know, developed here in Ireland called uh, the Trinity Early Screening Test, um, and it can be done on, on children in junior, senior, infants, um, and it can it, it very reliably pick up kids who are showing, you know, po- potentially signs of dyslexia. Now, while you may you know, it's not necessarily a diagnostic test, but it can certainly give you very good indicator of what a child's profile is, uh, maybe where their strengths and weaknesses are, and then it helps to give everyone a better understanding of their needs and what kind of strategies in terms of teaching approaches or technology are going to work for them. Um, I think we've kind of, the system has almost gone 
from one extreme to another. We we used to have a very medical model where everything was based on a kind of almost like a medical diagnosis of uh, of. Uh, Learning, learning difficulties or learning disabilities. Um, and in moving away from that model, we've kind of gone sort of flipped to the other end of the spectrum where now it's almost like they don't want to be diagnosing or I personally prefer the word identifying anyone, um, you know, with uh, with a condition. And I suppose yeah. we would often talk about that it's, it's not about labelling a child or an adult, but often it's about relabeling them. So it's saying, you know what, you're not lazy or you're not not trying or you're not bright or you're not you know the awful stupid words that sometimes people you know people will use you you are dyslexic your brain works in a different way you have strengths in these areas you uh, and unfortunately you have some weaknesses in areas that really impact on on literacy and, and other aspects of learning but you can't but you've lots of ability and with the right supports the you know uh, at the right stages um, and accommodations etc you can do great things in life absolutely want to take a short break will you stay there Rosie Siobhan no and April are staying with as well. Back in a moment. The listener says, my child has dyslexia too, uh, like that lady on the radio. And when I queried it with the teachers, they I kept being told, no, 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 your child is grand. But I knew that wasn't the case. Why aren't teachers trained to recognise this? And that's a point uh, we raised with Rosie Bissett as well. The school's picking up on it earlier. Thanks for your comment. To be positive on this, Siobhan, for yeah. a moment, can you give us, th- th- right, the diagnosis was mm. late in the day, yeah. but thank God it's been diagnosed before April heads into secondary school shortly. Yes, and, and Are there can... positives in this? Well, yeah, I mean, we're glad that we know and we know what we're dealing with. And also, it's very clear that April is not deficient or, you know, her brothers and sisters would be annoying her and going, you're stupid, you've got dyslexia and I want to thrashed them first but she's not her brain just works differently so say we're at home and I'm asking April to help me with something she is like I asked her to clean her room one day and I came upstairs and she had created from Summer's bed to her bed all of her hair bands and bobbles on a display going from one bed to the other the, the randomness of the things that she comes up with she's a very thoughtful and caring child so what we wanted to do was try and find ways to make life and school easier for her so the first thing we agreed with the teacher was to cut back on the homework so April does not spend more than 30 minutes doing homework because if she does she becomes frustrated and she gets tired and it's too much so that's the first thing we've done and the school are great about that I have to say the principal has been brilliant and Moontar Adrian has followed up with me this year about April even though he's not her teacher anymore and that makes a huge difference that level of care he spoke to her current teacher I've met with the current teacher and we have a plan and a programme in place to make school as stress free as possible for April that's the priority because school and college is going to be different for her than it is for my other children and we have to make that process as smooth as we can for her a huge thing that we've done we got her a laptop so April can do schoolwork and homework on the laptop and it helps her with spelling and we got her a, a reading pen so I, the, the Department of Education said, get her a reading pen. I said, where is it? What is it? Where do I get it? I go to one of the retailers. I went up to the retail park, went into all the shops and they were all like, I don't know what you're talking about. Thankfully, Rosie, the guys gave me some tips of where to go. And there's a company in Sligo, CompuPack IT, and they sell this pen. There's a lovely fellow in there called Brian. He's been really helpful. So you get this pen. And when April is reading her book or doing her homework, so at the moment she's reading the David Williams books. Now she'd be reading that book and there might be, how many words in a paragraph would you would you skip if you didn't know them? About four or five. Yeah. And what do you do now instead of skipping the words? I run my pen across the word 
and then it tells me it, it the pen reads out the word and gives me the definition the definition. definition from a dictionary. Oh, isn't that brilliant? So the pen reads the word to her and then there's a dictionary to give a definition. So she can understand much more and it gives her independence. She doesn't have to ask somebody. I want to say here I can speak from experience because we went through this as well with our son. And I have to say that people who live with dyslexia are the most outgoing, talented, clever, intelligent people you'll ever meet in the world. And I'm telling you that young lady today (laughs) sitting here before me. Rosie, time is going to beat us. We've a couple of minutes left. I wanted to come back to yourself. Good positives there from Siobhan. But if anyone's listening today and they're concerned, what's your advice to them? Okay, well, I suppose I would always say as a parent, you know, as a parent, trust your own instincts. You know, if you if you know something isn't right, you know, trust your own instincts. Oftentimes people will have this experience like Siobhan of slightly being fobbed off a little bit by school of saying, oh, it's nothing major. Don't be worrying about it. So trust your own instincts. Do definitely, I suppose, for parents, it's about getting information. You know, if you want to have a look at our website, which is dyslexia.ie, you know, in terms of, you know, finding some good information about dyslexia and read up a bit more about it. As a parent, you'll, you'll either find the more you read about it, the more you go, you're literally ticking all the boxes and going, gosh, this really sounds like my child. Or, or it may be that you're going, well, you know what, maybe it's not, you know. But if you are, you know, reading it and going, gosh, really, my child is ticking all of these boxes, well, then obviously, certainly, I'd say you need to, 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 to really think and look about uh, getting an assessment done. I would always advise people to talk to the school hopefully they will they will listen and will do something and you'll have a good teacher like 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 that lovely teacher uh, April had la- had last year um, and they'll know a bit about it and they'll be open to the idea and will look at at helping and facilitating that process if you're not getting anywhere with the school then you may like Many parents have to look at going and getting that at that done privately, either with a private psychologist or um, with ourselves in the Dyslexia Association. We do assessments in our national office here in Dublin, um, and we do do reduced rates if people are on low income as well. Okay, um, and as you say, look, you can see from from Siobhan and and April, you know. The importance, I suppose, of knowing what it is. You know, I think there's huge value to yeah. getting your, your, it's having your identity recognized in a way. And I suppose I'm also, I know one of the things I, uh, I think is, is really important as well is it enables you to find your tribe. If you don't know exactly what it is you're dealing with, how do you Google it? How do you know it's the Dyslexia Association I need to talk about? How do you manage to chat whether it's with other mums or whether it's with other kids and go, oh, you're a dyslexic like me? Great. So you can sit down and and have a chat and what do you do and what works for you and what technology do you find helpful and you know yeah. you can share tips and experiences mm. so I think uh, it, it is actually about claiming your identity as, as, a, as a dyslexic and that that's incredibly uh, powerful for people Okay listen I have to leave it there for today thank you all for joining me thank you Rosie Bissett CEO of Dyslexia Ireland and a big thank you to Siobhan O'Neill White and the wonderful April as well lovely to meet you we'll come back to this again on Late Lunch thanks a million everybody thank you, thank you. My next guest is a hard man to pin down. You see, he's very busy in his life, but I managed today to inveigle him to come in to me to finish the show this Thursday. Welcome back to Late Lunch, Errol Sweeney. Very welcome, Jerry. Thank you for joining me. And by the way, I hope you get over your man flu. I heard you just- <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing my best. I'm plenty of, and I'm sure I'll have the, the, the concoctions and prescriptions after the show flooding in. Anyway, Errol, thanks for dropping in because you are, of course, a referee of renown. And I wanted to talk to you, and I have been wanting to talk to you for a little while about VAR. Errol, my view on this, 
it's been a step backwards for the game. Agree or disagree? Well, Jerry, with with the let me say with, with the bigger teams. Let's go Premier League and and the Bundesliga and all that. There is so much money involved that something had to happen for two reasons. One, teams felt they were being done out of uh, points by losing a game on a penalty or losing a game on a goal that was offside or even other teams saying they gained a goal that they shouldn't have got. The other thing is it, it brings clarity to a situation that has been very argumentative for many years in that is it or isn't it? Was it or wasn't it? Is it a goal? Is it not a goal? They brought in the GLT, the goal line technology, yes. and a decision has arrived at that very, very quickly. The referee has a little watch type thing on his right arm. He looks at it. It says yay or nay, the whole of the ball. And remember, that's very important, the whole of the ball, not just the ball, the part that's on the ground. The circumference of the ball has to be over the line before it's a goal. And I not. love that. And that's good. And a, a decision can be arrived at very, very quickly. The problem with VAR is it's here to stay, by the way. It's here to stay. Because there's so much money involved and because people want a definitive answer, yay or nay, is it a handball? Is it not? Is it offside? Is it not? Now, people say, oh, you know, it was only that much and a millimetre. And it doesn't matter if it's a fraction of a millimetre. It's black and white. It's either offside by a fraction of a millimetre or it's not by 100 yards. I'm exaggerating. Oh, but Errol. that's the way it is. I, I, now, I, I know you say yes and people will but. say but. But, but, Aaron, <laughs> I watched the decision the other night and honestly, it might have been a smidgen of the player's short or something that was just, you know what I mean, when they drew that red line up yeah, from, from yeah. the line across yeah. and it took them three or four minutes. What, what I say to you about it is this, I, I accept and we love clarity. When it's a goal, it should be a goal. If it's a clear penalty, it should be given or not given on the other side or if it's an offside, yes, and, and that those decisions are made. But here's the thing. Errol, it's taken an eternity to get to a decision at times. People are standing in the grounds wondering what's happened. I want to ask you this. In the World Cup just gone past, where they had it, and they had the screens on the sides of the pitch, and referees went over and looked at the screens, why are Premier League referees, because that's the league that we see on television, not consulting the screens at the side? Jerry, I have absolutely no idea. You have a guy there in charge of the PGMOL, that's the Professional Games Match Officials Limited. They control refereeing. And the head of those is a guy called Mike Riley, who, in my opinion, was a very average to less than average referee in his own right. Now he's in charge of all these referees. He's very much what they call in, in London circles in football, a suit man, a blazer man. He's part, of, he's part of the FA because the referees fall under the national body, as they do here in Ireland. They, fall, they have their own referee society, but the actual referees fall under the FAI. Likewise, in England, they fall under the PGMOL, falls under the FA, and they decide things. Now... Why they're not allowed... By the way, the referees, I believe, I believe, are told not to go to the monitor. Why? I don't know. I have no idea. Why don't they do the two things together? That while the guys in the van or wherever they are positioned in the outside broadcast truck, at the same time the referee can go to the monitor and they can make a decision together. Because at the end of the day, under Law 5, the referee's decision is final. Regardless of what the VAR man says... He can say A, and the referee in the field says, no, I don't agree. 
it's no goal or is a goal or whatever. But why they don't do it, that's the big issue, I think. I don't think people have a problem with VAR per se. I think they have a problem with the length of time it takes to arrive at a decision. I think that's something that needs to be addressed. And I would love to see them go to that screen at the side of the pitch to consult. And I think it's a very good proposal you make there. Let it happen simultaneously with the guys in the yeah. trucks, wherever they are. My God, Errol, you know, it certainly prompted debate and conversation oh, when we thought it would be, as you say, definitive. And, and it should be, Jerry. It yes. should be definitive. And it should be a decision should be arrived at very, very quickly. I don't know why it's taking so long. It shouldn't take that long. It doesn't happen in cricket. It doesn't happen in rugby. Perhaps sometimes until they get an absolute. But then there's a different story in rugby. There's 10 guys on top of the ball and you don't know whether you cross that. That's a different story. In soccer, it's fairly clear and clean. Uh, Why they can't arrive at a decision earlier... Oh, only God knows. Would you like us to be able to hear what's been said, like in rugby? Because you can hear clearly, you know, what's going on between the, the match official on the ground and the person up looking at the, the rerun. I think so. At, at senior level football, yes. These guys are not, they're not there just because they're, they're good looking. They're, they're educated and they can talk. I've often been asked in the past, why don't referees come out and explain their decisions? I wouldn't necessarily agree with that because not all referees would be media savvy and they might say the wrong thing. And as an add-on to that, I wouldn't mind them explaining it so long as it doesn't become a debate. And then the debate leads to an argument and then it goes further and further and further. In general terms, officiating, uh, how do you look on it as, as a man that follows it intensely, you know, in the Premier League this year, in the European competitions as well? And, and we see VAR as being a support to them. What do you think in general terms? Is it better? In, in general terms, and again on VAR, it's good because there's so much ducking and diving and cheating and yeah. and players, you know, simulating yellow and red cards, trying to get their fellow professionals sent off. That, to me, is the disgusting part of the game. And, and there's times, actually, when I've turned off a game. I watched last night uh, Manchester City, and again, there was shenanigans going on there. I mean, they were playing Atlanta, at Atalanta. And... That's not necessary. The other thing, by the way, on the VAR, nobody, and it clearly states it under the, under the rules, no players are allowed to crowd around the referee while he's making his decision. What's happening? <laughs> and why are they doing it, Jerry? Because they're getting away with it. And that's our fault. I've just, I write a column in a, in a South African newspaper every Sunday, and I've just done my blog today for this weekend. And I've lambasted the referees for allowing this to happen. Because they are told, the players will be told, VAR is coming in, the referee will make a decision, stay away. What do they do? They crowd around the referees. The other thing of significance, just before we finish, is that women are taking their place in the centre with the whistle. They've run the line, of course, in the past, but now officiating at games. Do you think, in a way, male professional players at the top level would have more respect for a woman? I doubt it. They have no respect for themselves. They have no respect for anybody. They will cheat and they will lie and they will dive just to get a decision that they want. I don't think so. Um, I hope the women will be stronger than the men, and I think they might, in that they will deal with such issues uh, as players protesting, frivolous protests, just just plain nonsense. I hope the women will deal with it. There's a young lady running in the um, running regular lines now in the Premier League in England. She's brilliant. 
She's fantastic. Outstanding. They've so shown decisions she's made in real time. Yeah. And I think to to a fault, she's got them all yeah. right. You yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Which, has, which is yeah. marvellous to she's see. Um, but I'm saddened to hear you say that, that. That You know, when you mention all those bad traits that oh, footballers display. And, and I think it comes back to what you said just for a moment. The, the, the hammer must come down on yeah. them. Yeah, you know, like we're 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 not. And I say we. I mean, I'm not involved anymore. Sadly, I would love to have been involved, but I would be advising my referees: um, don't take that nonsense, uh, because if you do, well, you deserve it, uh, and the players will continue doing that. So long as they're getting away with it, I suppose it's human nature until somebody clamps down. But the problem then is when you clamp down, will the powers that be support you? I remember doing a, a, a B division game, Dundalk and Shelburne, many years ago. I sent off four players and every one of them were right. What happened? I was suspended. I was too strict. <laughs> it does show you that you need Politics. the backing and support, Politics, doesn't it? And yeah. then the clubs kick up and it all takes yeah, a different Yeah, and that's life. the problem, the yeah. politics of Yeah, and, and it is important that the people stand behind referees yeah. and support them. Because it's still, even with VAR, <laughs> don't I tell you, it's one of the most difficult yeah. roles to play. But you know, yes and no, Jerry. I mean, you're, generally your gut... Tells your gut you. instinct tells you the, what's right and what's wrong. The, the, what you see is generally correct. Okay, it'll be a little bit off here, a little bit off there. And now, by the way, incidentally, if a, if a ball touches the hand of an attacking player on its way to the net, even glances off it, that goal is now disallowed. <laughs> I wonder about that as well. That's there's a story. so many other changes I could tell you about. Oh, yeah. could take look, ten, ten we'll, we'll come back to them another mm. day, I promise you. But for the moment, it's been a real pleasure. Errol Sweeney, thank you so much for dropping You're in to welcome, me on Late Jerry. Lunch this afternoon. That's a lot on the show for this Thursday. Just to tell you that Maeve McCabe got the answer right. Yes, the cover version was of Hallelujah, the Leonard Cohen song. And you're going along to the Riverbank at Father Ray Kelly tomorrow evening. Eddie's coming next with The Drive. We'll see you tomorrow Friday for the final Late Lunch of the week. Have a nice evening. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors. The 2020 Renault Runway event is now on at Blackstone Motors, Drogheda, Dundalk and Cavan. Save thousands across the range for the new year. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.